2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in par- partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? You can subscribe to either of those letters by going to miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com. Or you can also go to J. Taylor Media. It's J A Y Taylor Media. Dot com To access those newsletters as well as this radio show and everything else that I do, you can also follow me on Twitter under the handle JTaylorMedia. Well, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business channel. And I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Today's show is sponsored by Blue Goldwaters Technologies Limited, uh, Prophecy Platinum, Balmoral Resources, Golden Arrow resources and SGX resources. Well, I believe we are approaching the buy of a lifetime for gold mining stocks, and in fact, we may now have seen the bottom. I have expressed this view in my monthly and weekly newsletter that were published last week. There are very strong reasons to think the gold share markets are now ready to rebound in spades, and in fact, lead gold bullion to the next leg up in the price of gold in what Dr. Robert McHugh believes will be a wave five, an Elliott wave five up move. And as Dr. McHugh has said in the past, wave five moves for gold are the most dramatic and most powerful in a secular gold bull market. Indeed, one of my favorite gold stocks, and one that I have been buying for my own account aggressively is sand gold corp in addition to buying sand gold for my own account it is a recommendation in my newsletter and it has been uh, the company has been a sponsor to the show in the past In just a couple of minutes, I will be speaking with uh, Sandgold's recently appointed CEO, Ian Berzine, who seems to be making some real progress in turning this company towards a profitable gold mining operation at its Rice Lake gold mining complex in Manitoba, Canada. And I say that even given the low gold prices as they are now. Again, I want to tell you that I have been buying this stock aggressively in around the 10 to $0.12 range uh, after having purchased those shares at much higher levels in the past. Uh, But I do believe that if you are an investor in gold mining shares, uh, you will want to listen to what Ian Berzine has to say about what's taking place at uh, Rice Lake for this company in Manitoba. And I'm really honored to tell you that David Stockman is set to join me at approximately 3.30 here in New York to talk about his 700-plus page book titled The Great Deformation. I will want to ask Mr. Stockman what the deformation of our economy will mean for Americans going forward and what he thinks we can and should do to protect ourselves. How could you possibly miss what this very famous independent thinker, in the Reagan administration has to say, someone with the courage to speak out against the establishment. At approximately 4 o'clock p.m., Dr. Robert McHugh will join me again to talk about his up-and-coming book called The Coming Economic Ice Age. Dr. McHugh thinks that we have a bit further to run on the bull market side, on the equity bull market. He thinks that we could see 17,000 on the Dow before it's over, but then he believes that we may be facing something much more serious than our grandparents experienced in the Great Depression. Well, I believe the historical account of how America is heading towards ruin that uh, David Stockman talks about in his book, as well as Dr. McHugh's work, are largely in sync, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have both of them on the same show today. Meantime, though, we do need to take care of business on a day-to-day basis, so to help us in that regard, I have David Gerwitz joining me at approximately 4.30 uh, to tell us what Charles Nanner, is, uh, his latest views are on the stock bond and precious metals markets, and that is a short-term view that Charles Nanner takes. Then, time permitting, I will share with you a couple of my own uh, gold share Ideas with respect to uh, those markets. I am very excited now about the prospects of making money in this sector, given the extreme pessimism about gold and gold mining companies uh, and a reason to believe that gold and silver markets are, in fact, seem to be at least, turning the corner. We're keeping our fingers crossed, of course. We do have to go to break now, and uh, when we come back, I will be talking to Ian Brazine, the CEO of a favorite penny gold stock of mine called Sand Gold. Don't go away. I'll be right back.
0: To business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
3: In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Well Green Platinum Group metals, nickel, and copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit ProphecyPlat.com.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm really pleased to have with me, for the first time, Ian Berzins. He's the President, CEO, and COO of Sand Gold Corporation. Sand Gold uh, trades in the Toronto Exchange under the symbol SGR, and you can buy it down here in in the States, as I have, under the symbol SGRCF. There are approximately 335 million shares outstanding, and the recent uh, price of the stock has been between 9 and 12, 13 cents, somewhere in that range, giving it a market cap somewhere in the range of 30 to $40 million. Well, Sandgold has been a sponsor to this show in the past. It has been a recommendation in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and it has been a stock that I have been adding aggressively to my own position in the belief uh, and hope that the company still has a bright future, despite it taking longer than I had previously envisioned uh, for its Rice Lake gold mining project. Uh, to turn profitable, but uh, I, I might also mention that I visited the company's project at Rice Lake several years back and went deep underground uh, with uh, Dale Ginn at that time, who was the president of the company at that time. Um, and um, So I have more than a passing interest in this company. I really want to see them do well, so I'm just uh, uh, getting all those disclosures out of the way. Uh, so welcome, in. It's really good to have you with me.
4: Thank you. Uh, pleased to join you this morning, Jay. Really good to have you.
2: Uh, I assume I'm talking to you up there uh, near Rice Lake now?
4: Uh, yeah, well, I'm up at the mine site uh, today. Okay, I should mention just a
2: little Bit of your background for the sake of our listeners: uh, You have had uh, you've been a mining engineer with 30 years of experience, uh, and uh, you've also worked not only in gold but oil sands, coal, and base metals, and. Previously, before becoming president of this company, you were also with Sherwood Copper, Albion Sands, and Suncor Energy, uh, and served as general manager at several gold mining companies, including Harmony Gold, Echo Bay Mining, Miraman, uh, Miramar uh, Con Mine, and uh, you are a registered member of the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of the province of Manitoba. So, really good to have you. I, I should mention to our listeners that uh, you assumed the office of president and CEO only on March 25th, I believe, of this year, but I would like to start out by noting some of the statistics from that first quarter, which have been, uh, frankly, disappointing to many of us who have owned this stock over the years, and ask you how you are working to turn things around. I noticed that the second quarter performance numbers look much better anyway, but during the first quarter of this year, before you took over the current position of the company, Sandgold, uh, its production was down. And its costs were up to something over eleven hundred dollars per ounce. So, what were the factors leading to that sort of poor performance in the first quarter of two thousand thirteen?
4: Yeah, thanks. The main the main reason for, and it really wasn't just the first quarter. We had a, we had a poor Q four mm-hmm. as well, where. We had a grade that came in at about 4.2 grams per ton. Our our model here is to have a a grade of about 5 to 5.5 grams, and in fact, we've been able to achieve that in Q2, so uh, we've come back to the the more normal level, so uh, 17,000 ounces doesn't get uh, it done for us here, and so we we have to be above 20, and as you mentioned, uh, we came in above 22,500 for this quarter, so... We certainly uh, were looking for cash uh, costs to be quite improved this year. We'll probably be we'll be coming out with them in the next two weeks, so it's a bit early for me to speak to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, the big issue was great. Uh, certainly, we had uh, entered the year predicting a gold price at about $1,600, which we certainly d- didn't enjoy as well. Uh, what we've done to correct that uh, has been that uh, we were on a uh, on a push to do as many ounces as we could uh, late last year and early this year in order to try to chase a, a higher ounce profile. Uh, under my leadership, we we've elected to to more right size the operation. We're predicting uh, our guidance right now is 75,000 to 90,000 ounces at about uh, 5 to 5.5 grams. So uh, we think that this operation, as it's built today, is better sized to be in that lower range and, and not to be pushing above 100,000 until we get uh, more scopes that are available uh, for us. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I noticed that your uh, average millhead grade was something like 5.05 grams uh, for the last quarter, as opposed to 4.15, I think I saw, for the uh, for the first quarter of this year. What do you? How do you account for the higher grades? And is it something that can be sustained over time?
4: Yeah, it certainly can be sustained. Uh, the resource, uh, resource, and reserve grade we're carrying is about six grams. Uh, we had to look, with gold prices dropping below fourteen and down towards twelve fifty, uh, to look at what should be the appropriate cutoff grade. And so, some of the ore that was going to the mill in Q four and Q one. Was in the range of even three and a half to four grams from parts of our hinge deposit. So what we elected to do was to actually stockpile a lower grade ore, and about 20% of our production right now is being stockpiled as low grade, and then we're we're feeding the mill with about 80%. Now, when when uh, gold prices return, then we'll have an opportunity to treat that material as an incremental feed. And uh, our mill is capable of running at 2,500 tons per day. We're currently running um, at, uh, on average, about 17 to 1,800 tons because that's what the mine is. Uh, that's what we're able to feed. So we still have capacity in the mill, and uh, we'll look at those uh, that low grade as as an incremental feed down the road. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, um that you're
2: spending a considerable amount of money uh, to integrate the a uh, the a shaft with the existing infrastructure in order to decrease material handling costs. How far along are you on that project, and and how much money will you need to spend yet to complete it?
4: Yeah, we're we're making good progress on that. Uh, what we did, uh, we had a contract. We have a contractor that's doing the work on sixteen level, which is about uh, twenty four hundred feet underground, mm-hmm. and uh, we have to push out about. Uh, over a kilometer, or also over two kilometers, uh, to get out underneath what we call our hinge deposit, and then again further uh, distance in 2014. What that's going to do for us is allow us to to take the ore that's currently being trucked to surface from the hinge in the 007 and drop it down to a high-speed tram on 16 level, and then also 26 level, and then utilize the, uh, the Rice Lake shaft to, to optimize the haulage cost. So we're uh, we're on track to be underneath the double or the hinge posit uh, by the end of this year, and we've actually cross cut a down dip extension of the 007 on 26 level up already. So hmm. in terms of that second part, we we're ahead of schedule at 26, and uh, we're on schedule on 16. Once those developments are are completed uh, towards the end of next year, uh, twenty six will be done complete. But once sixteen is done, then our then our sustaining uh, money tends to be about two million dollars a month on capital to support the mining methods here, which are mechanized cut and fill and long hole mining. Mm hmm.
2: Mm hmm.
4: So, so I guess it's it's saving you energy costs by
2: by connecting the, the A-frame? Well, the big
4: saving is is uh, will be in a reduction on trucking. Uh, uh-huh. Our truck currently hauling from uh, from the new discoveries, uh, the round trip is about an hour and a half. Mm. So you've only got the time, an operator, and a truck, but you've also got the diesel costs and the tire mm-hmm. costs. So mm-hmm. if we're able to drop that ore down to the high-speed t- tram and up A-shaft, it's going to allow us to make a significant change in our um, in our transportation costs. And then we have a choice is that if we have sufficient stopes, then those trucks can be used to be working more regionally in those stoping areas. And, and uh, as a result, it would give us that opportunity to potentially even increase production because we, we would have the equipment to do
2: so. And c- increase production up towards that mill capacity of 2,500 perhaps. And I would think there would be uh, considerable economies of scale that would run with that.
4: Absolutely, and I mean at this point the the mill is in good shape. Uh, we we have some potential to expand it further, but we're really at the point where we we need to get sufficient working areas. Uh, we had originally planned to leave the Rice Lake mine uh, the the mining end of it, the actual uh, stopes, on hold until the infrastructure was complete. Uh, part of the reason that the grade has improved is we brought back on stream. Uh, some of the ore production from Rice Lake, and rice has historically been some of our better grades, so that's also a contributor to the better grades in Q2 and then what we'll enjoy in Q3 and Q4 this year.
2: I understand, uh, you know, given the the market conditions that we're in now, you've put on a real push to cut not just cash costs but uh, uh, but all-in costs. Could you comment on, on what some of the cost-saving uh, measures you've taken to, to try to to try to improve the profit picture here.
4: Sure, I mean on the cash or on the cash cost front. I mean some of the some of the things that we did do was uh, we, we did a layoff of about five percent of the workforce. We're, we're critically looking at how many people should be here. Currently running the operation with about four hundred and twenty employees, as compared to a budget of about four hundred and eighty. So hmm. the unit activities with the with the workforce have been very good. Uh, we made a small reduction on our pension plan this year, which was discretionary, and we hope when gold prices come back, we're going to be able to start uh, uh, paying back into that again. The plan still exists, but uh, so it was a, a tough cut. Uh, senior management, myself, and others took salary cuts and didn't take bonuses last year. So we're trying to look at uh, at holding the, the spends in those areas, and uh, but on the capital front. Uh, We, uh, we've purposely either deferred or canceled certain projects. We at one point were looking to build a mid-shaft loading, uh, pocket in the A-shaft, but we felt that for an investment of 10 to 12 million dollars, it really didn't make sense when we have capacity already in the Mm A-shaft. Uh, so we are, but we're gonna, we're in the process of of cutting about 20% of that planned capital spend. Uh, we have historically been a large uh, uh, explorer. Uh, we've had budgets of, of 250,000 meters for about the last three years. Yeah. And that's contributed, of course, to a large uh, resource of, of 3.5 million ounces globally. But when we look at things now, we're not getting credit for drilling. Uh, we had an obligation under in Canada. Uh, we raised the money under a flow-through uh, concept, which you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And we have an obligation to spend about $16 $17 million this year on on expiration expenses. We've spent about nine to date, and and seven will be spent in the second half. But going into next year, we're critically looking at what is the right size for expiration spending. And I can say that we're going to be cutting back uh, simply because we have. it will be much more important for us to convert the inferred up to the measured and indicated category as compared to finding new deposits. Mm -hmm. We will have a a modest regional program, and because the mill, uh, within our land package here, we have some exciting opportunities. We are... um, we will look at at uh, exploration spending from the perspective that if we we'll be drilling based on success. So that if we get onto a structure that we think can be turned around in short order, then uh, then we'll justify monies to go after that drilling. But sure. broadly speaking, uh, we will not be drilling at the level that Sandgold historically
2: has. Well, indeed, uh, I mean Sandgold has been drilling at a, at a torrid pace. I mean it's. Uh uh, I think you know something. Well, just really a huge, aggressive drill program. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of that is going to come in handy, though, longer term. That these these are not dollars that are necessarily wasted longer term. I notice, for example, as I look at a cross section of your underground mining complex, there you've got something called the L13 that lies between the A shaft and the the hinge structure, and then you got something called the Cohiba. Uh, that lies between uh, the hinge and the 007. It seems to me those are very uh, those those mineralized areas are very shallow at this point in time. Do they are they open at depth and might those uh, those structures be mined in the future?
4: Yeah, in in fact uh, we we haven't talked about it too much, but we're we're actually have a test production scope in the L13 as we speak, and mm. this is a relatively narrow uh, vein uh, between three and four feet. But what we did is we introduced what's called long-hole Alomac mining. And so we've just completed one of the Alomacs uh, up about 260 feet, and so we'll be taking out a much more narrow strip. So Mm -hmm. after a mechanized cut and fill where we have to mine it at 8.5 to 9 feet, we'll be able to just take the ore zone at 4 to 5 feet. So we think that that will be a – it could actually become a mining method that we integrate. As you mentioned, Cohiba – uh that's again the portal's been opened up but we we need some more drilling to really understand that but all these deposits uh, it it's very exciting here because 6 years ago the the deposits like hinge and 007 were not even known to the company and when I had a chance to to manage this as general manager back under Ray and Harmony uh we didn't have surface budgets to drill everything was underground mm-hmm. and we're now finding a lot of discoveries in what would be the hanging wall of the original San Antonio mining unit so things like L thirteen and Coiba, we, we're we're beginning to understand them, and uh, we have mineralization in the hanging wall, well, and arguably we, we may have some under the in the footwall as well, underneath the lake. So this is a big belt. Uh, I, I should I should for your viewers uh, or re- listeners, uh, the Rice Lake uh, line is is sitting in a greenstone or key and greenstone belt that, that goes all the way over to Red Lake. Mm-hmm. So the same aged rocks. And uh, as, as a lot of your viewers may know, uh, Red Lake is a prolific uh, mining camp, and uh, we're just uh, 100 kilometers away uh, to the west. So um, we think that uh, our, our belt has been grossly underexplored compared to, to that side of the Ontario border, and we think that uh, uh, if there were other companies, of course, here drilling, uh, there would be more discoveries. We, we hold now a very large land package, about 400 uh, square kilometers, so mm. it's um, it, it's it's a good package, and and uh, we think we're going to be rewarded. So it's a combination of of stepping out gradually from our known structures, but our our, our deposition model is is changing as we learn more about the, about the belt.
2: You um, recently issued a fifty million dollar convertible debenture with an eight percent coupon on it, I believe. Uh, was that that was um, issued to fund some of these um some of these improvements um, for example connecting the a the a frame to the underground workings
4: yes i mean i mean a big part of that was to ensure that we had enough uh, working capital this year and next to support those development infrastru- or the, those infrastructure improvements and um so,, uh, the money uh, we've uh, uh, at the end of uh, the end of last month, we had about twenty six million dollars left of that. So uh, we are taking steps to reduce our cash burn. and and in, in my mind, uh, we're going to get to positive cash before the end of the year. So uh, whether we'll need more capital funding, uh, we'll we'll see but uh, that was a, a mechanism that we felt we, we needed to do to ensure that uh, that we had the, the, the background to go forward now our mind plan has also changed in the, in the last period so that we're not looking to have this incremental year-over-year growth so I think we can be frugal with uh, with those monies going forward and, and stretch them out and I'd like to uh, I'd like to be at the point where we get to, to positive cash or free cash and then from there uh, I would prefer to be raising money in the equity markets at a much higher share price uh, later this year or next year if uh, if we can get the appreciation in, in our share price.
2: I can tell you as a shareholder what I would prefer, and that would be total uh, internally generated capital. But uh, that's maybe a dream. Uh, that we can hope for, that you don't have to go back to the equity markets, or if you do, as you say, at much higher prices. But uh,
4: And, and it would, if we did at that time, it, it wouldn't be to support what we're doing. It would really be because we could justify a, a growth story. You know, sure. It could, could be an A or something like that. But but certainly we want to pay for this operation uh, through the mining that we're doing, and, and I think uh, in a couple of weeks' time, I think people will be pleasantly surprised by... Uh, by our uh, our cash position, our cash uh, cash costs
2: and walling costs when we announce them a little bit later in August. Um, so your cash position is good for now. If we can, if you can get cash flow positive by the end of the year, things should really be looking up, and I would think the market would start to be t- looking at your share price a little more favorably. But you know this thing called the gold price. It's just um, it's been very very difficult. I think one of the most difficult periods that I can remember in this business, and I've been in it for a long long time. Um, you know, I, I sort of believe that we've seen the bottom, but I'm not sure. And there are some very reputable analysts out there that think we might need to see 1,100 yet or even 1,000 uh, before we start to see a resumption of the, of the secular bull market in gold. But let's say for the more pessimistic view, turns out to be true. Is there a gold price at which Sandgold would have to start thinking about shutting down the operation?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we, we talk about that. Uh, I mean, it wasn't that many months ago that 1400 seemed to be a tough reality. Yeah. So, uh, and, uh, but we're at the point now with the gold price where it's at that we're, we're getting very close to being cash positive. So, yes, if gold went down to $1,000, uh, in my mind, with our current cash structure, uh, we... We can probably get our cash costs down to 700, and and we could probably live with capital costs around 300, but mm-hmm. we wouldn't be doing any drilling. Uh, mm-hmm. We still have some overhead, so there would be some rationalization that we could consider. There is the ability to an to an extent to to go after more of the the higher grade areas, but you always want to watch doing that because if you if you pillage the higher grade, then when yeah. you do come back into mining. Um, you're you're just going to you're gonna you're going struggle and if you cut your capital cost too far then when you do come back mining again you'll have to go through a phase where you're in a in a, in a massive development so we uh, we've got an outstanding workforce here uh, it's local um, four hundred and twenty people some of these some of these people have been with us now for over six, seven years and uh, you know it's it's my belief that when you get a good workforce you want to keep them engaged and there are always things you can do to, to look at an operation, and it might be that growth is also part of the way to get forward. And as I mentioned, we have the, the mill capacity. So um, if gold does go to a thousand, I think it's not just the young or the, the, the junior operators, but everything from the mid tier to the seniors are, are really going to struggle to live in that environment for any extended period of time. And uh, what I like about our situation is that I can virtually turn off the, any of the PP&E or, or uh, property expenditures, plant property expenditures. We have enough mobile equipment. Uh, you know, we have the grid power. We have everything built on surface. So it's really we would have to uh, to look at the balance between operating and, and capital. Uh, you did mention before about some of the cuts. Uh, we, we did take steps to... Uh, We've, uh, we're in the process of, of shutting down our Toronto office. We're down to one person there. So mm-hmm. we're, we're looking at all the things where every dollar here now is discretionary. And uh, so we, I, I'm of the view that, that the gold price it won't go to 1000 but at the same time we're going to plan for that eventuality. So we're trying to make tough cuts today that um, if things continue to drop, then it won't be as painful and we have options to, uh, to keep our heads above water.
2: Yeah, indeed, and I I want to make clear to my listeners that I'm not predicting a $1000 for any length of time at least. I think that we're in a bottoming process here. Uh and in fact, uh, Bob Hoy, an analyst out of Vancouver, is making the point that the share that the gold shares are the, are most more oversold or as oversold as they've been only four times in the last uh, 100 years. So, and his thoughts are that we are in the process of that the gold share markets will probably lead the gold bullion markets up. So I, I I, can see, Ian, that you are planning to survive this very difficult time, and those that do survive are much stronger for it, and it looks to me like you're making plans to uh, uh, to really put shareholders in a very good position longer term. I mean, I'm saying that as a shareholder and one that, was, that, that has really championed uh, the story for a long time. It's not been easy, but this is a tough industry, isn't it?
4: It is, and I guess the other thing I'd be remiss in not speaking to is the other strategy is that we're we're going to we're looking at everything as either core or non-core assets, and where we can, we're going to try to monetize those non-core assets. We released yesterday that we had acquired Wild Wildcat's position or large yes. part position. Some people were confused and maybe critical, but we had a situation where we had an 80% uh, we we were going to earn 80% in in about 170 hectares very prospective ground that we've been drilling uh, but we didn't we, we didn't have an equity position until we had completed all the terms over 4 years so we were able to negotiate 100% acquisition uh and, and effectively defer about $2.5 million in uh, in otherwise work commitments over the next two years. So uh-huh. it's a very attractive uh, decision for us. So it, on one hand, spent a little bit of cash and a few shares, but we've significantly increased our land position here or consolidated it uh, at a time, you know, when when things are tough. So that's one issue. The other one is we have a very interesting uh, interest in, in our junior exploration company called SGX. Yes. Uh, resources. And uh, SGX is, is having good success on what's called the Tully deposit that's north of Timmins and also the Timmins South deposit or the Hilson. And in both cases, uh, Dale Ginn, our, our past president here, uh, Dale's president of that entity, and uh, they're doing very well. Uh, again, they're struggling with the share price, but uh, uh, on the south, on the Edelson, we're looking at that as something that could be a, uh, maybe a smaller scale of Cote Lake, and uh, so it's it's halfway between the Young Davidson uh, Areco's project and and the um, um, and the uh, Well I am Gold now, sorry mm-hmm. with uh, with Kalani. So that's going to be a large low grade deposit, and it's open. Uh, so that's going very well. We have 29% of SGX, but we actually own ourselves an additionally 50% of the Tully. So some of these things we want to keep. If we have to and there are willing buyers, uh, we, we may have to divest of certain assets if, in fact, um, uh, things get get tough. So. Yeah. We- not get the price we want, but uh, we would. Uh, you know, you have to live, uh, live to fight another
2: day. Absolutely, and I can
4: see that's what you're
2: doing. And by with all the cost cutting, and if you live through this, and I expect you will, that there's an awful lot of upside, whether or not it's uh, over there in Timmins or right there in your where you are now at Rice Lake. Looks like you have an awful lot of exploration and growth potential there as well. Ian, we are out of time. I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to say before we conclude our discussion uh, today. I guess uh, people can go to your website, uh, Sandgold website, which is one. Place to keep up with all with all that's going on with the company.
4: We'd invite people to do that. I, I think it's a story that has fallen out of favor, but uh, I would submit right now that we are one of the most undervalued, if not the most undervalued, uh, producing Canadian gold mining companies. And uh, I think we're going to enjoy some appreciation in our values going forward. And those that can can see that, um, I think it's uh, it's a good t- it's a good time to to look at Sandgold. So, but I, I appreciate very much the opportunity to uh, to. To talk this morning,
2: Jay. Well, thank you very much and I might just add to my listeners that I feel very very much in agreement with Ian because I've gone out and purchased shares for my own retirement account. Of course, we want all of you listening to this show and to our discussion with Ian uh, to do your own research and uh, and think about it. We're not I'm not suggesting, by any means, and certainly Ian, less than I even, suggesting that this is uh, this is a sure thing. I mean, this is a high-risk business. Uh, it is, these shares are speculative, but I think uh, Ian is doing a great job in bringing things around and uh, get, allowing this company to live to see another day, and I think those days are going to be much brighter as I look forward uh, to a resumption of the bull market in gold. Thank you very much, Ian, for being with us. Folks, don't go away, because coming up next will be David Stockman. He was the director of the Office of Management and Budget in the Reagan administration. Administration. Mr. Stockman has written The Great Deformation. That's a fabulous 700-page book that I think offers the most thorough account of why our country is straying so far from what our founding fathers risked their lives to give us and why we have to spend so much time thinking about investing in gold and other strategies to protect wealth rather than employing our resources in generating additional wealth. If you care about those you love, you can't afford to miss the wisdom of David Stockman, who will be with me right after the break.
1: SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com.
5: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me today David Stockman, former Michigan congressman, but a man who is perhaps best known for his honest and truthful appraisal of the U.S. budget when he was uh, head of the Office of Management and Budget in the Reagan administration. Because he was looking at the U.S. budget through, I think, through a set of clear and transparent lenses rather than those uh, rose-colored glasses worn by many of the supply-side economists during those years, and because he had the courage to honestly speak his mind even to the President of the United States, David got himself into some trouble with many folks in the Republican establishment. But for that, I think all Americans owe him a great big thank you because he dared to step out against the groupthink that was problematic in the 1980s, but I would argue is even more problematic now. But we also owe David a big thank you, I believe, for his, uh, as well for his masterpiece on recent American financial and economic history, his 700-plus page book titled The Great Deformation. That was published earlier this year, and despite its criticism of the establishment, David has received a great deal of attention in the mainstream media here in New York and elsewhere, uh, even very considerable coverage in the New York Times uh, and other written press. David Stockman not only brings a uniquely uh, independent perspective of how things work in Washington, but also, he provides us with an equally clear vision of how Wall Street seeks to partner with Washington to circumvent the natural laws of free markets, which is described as crony capitalism. Since, Washington, uh, since leaving Washington, David worked with the Blackstone Group, where he was a senior managing director, and before that, he was a managing director at Solomon Brothers. So David has held senior positions in Washington and on Wall Street, which provides him with the exposure to share what he has learned during those years in the Great Deformation. Of course, David is not alone in that regard. There have been many senior executives on Wall Street who have also taken senior positions uh, in administrations in Washington. But what I believe does make David Stockman unique is that he is an honest, independent thinker who is willing to say what he believes, even at times when it may not be self-serving. So, David Stockman, it's really a pleasure and an honor to have you with me today. Thank you for coming on Turning Hard Times into Good Times.
6: Well, Jay, i very happy to be with you, and I appreciate very much your kind words. You know, when my book came out, uh, it generated a lot of flying brickbats from a lot of directions, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it does demonstrate something. It was denounced, uh, as you could imagine, rapidly uh, by the Keynesians, to be expected, but also by the monetarists and also by many of the supply-siders. And I think that there's a common thread uh, to all of that criticism, and that is that I have basically said the state, the government, is out of control. It's taken on missions far beyond its capacity, both fiscally as well as simply uh, decision-making, accumulating majorities in a very complex uh, democracy. And the mistake that has been made over the last 30, 40, or 50 years has been to assume that the free market economy needs constant stimulus, constant medication, constant intervention uh, and management by the fiscal and central banking authorities. And all three of those ideologies, one way or another, want the government to make the economy better, my argument in the book is that the economy is getting worse and worse on a trend performance basis exactly because of all of that government intervention and that uh, today we're barely growing on a trend basis at at 1% because the fundamental rules of free markets, fiscal rectitude, and sound money have more or less finally been jettisoned. After you know a 40, 50, 60-year history of gradually, um, you know, setting aside and violating each of these rules, you know, incrementally in significant turning points uh, over that period. Well, there's no question in my mind, and I
5: I could say Amen to all of that uh, as a person who sort of really very much believes in free markets. And I don't know how the country came to to believe otherwise, but but uh, clearly that is the ideology as you as you laid it out there. You know, David, the uh, the mainstream media has always led us since the Lehman Brothers debacle has always led us to believe that the 700 billion dollar TARP bailout uh, was not only good for Wall Street was also good for every human being that lives in America. And I don't believe that, uh, I'm sure, I know that you don't buy that. Can you explain why uh, the faulty argument on the part of the mainstream press, why is it not good for Main Street?
6: Well, uh, you can't have capitalism unless you have uh, the freedom to both succeed and fail. You can't have a vibrant capitalism unless there are corrective, uh, movements in markets, particularly financial markets, when excesses occur, when mistakes are made, when leverage gets uh, too large, or when speculation uh, becomes uh, uncontrolled and unreasonable. And that's what 208 September, the Lehman uh, event in September 208 was all about. It wasn't that the U.S. economy was about ready to enter the uh, De- Great Depression 2.0, or that some you know financial black hole of uh, un, you know unknown uh, dimensions was pending i don 't think that is true at all. I demonstrated about a hundred pages of my book that this essentially was a crisis within the canyons of Wall Street mm-hmm. and that two of the three of the big investment banks that had gotten totally uh, over leveraged and had become massive uh, what i call uh, you know casino uh, gambling houses as a result of cheap money uh, from the fed and the uh, is, you know the liquidity that it, it injected but anyway my point is that at that point bear stearns was down and it should have been lehman failed and it failed for good reasons it basically was insolvent and uh merrill lynch uh, you know would have failed had it not been um you know, put into the arms of Bank America. So there were two uh, gambling houses standing, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. They should have been allowed to fail. They could have gone through the normal bankruptcy process. They could have been reorganized into smaller, uh, more uh, disciplined, more focused uh, businesses. The leaders who would have emerged – from a proper bankruptcy process, would have lost all of their equity value in the old companies. They would have ended up chastened. They would have ended up uh, running the successor businesses in a far more disciplined uh, and prudent manner. So the idea that this was going to spread to the overall Main Street banking system around the country is just totally wrong. I demonstrate the Main Street banks did not have all of these toxic assets, all of these, you know, uh, gam- uh, basically gambling-based securities like CDS, CDOs, CDO Squares, and so forth. And the uh, idea that you heard from Bernanke and from uh, uh, Paulson, Secretary Paulson, that this is going to spread like wildfire coast to coast is absolutely refutable and uh, was a scare tactic used in order to get the $700 billion blank check so they could bail out their friends on Wall Street. Uh, and as a result of that, though, we crossed the Rubicon, and you can hear it echoed every day in some new event in our society. Today it's Detroit in bankruptcy. Today mm-hmm. the statement is we bailed out Wall Street, we bailed out AIG, How could we not bail out the poor retired uh, policemen and firemen and everybody else in Detroit who is going to face a day of pretty serious reckoning? So what what happened then was because we bailed out uh, Wall Street based on the panic of a few people, and I blame Bernanke especially and Secretary Paulson, we now have no fiscal discipline. We now have no ability uh to tell the squeaky wheels that come along whether it's the farmers who got you know a couple weeks ago a huge new 200 billion dollar uh 10 year farm subsidy program or Detroit or everybody in between uh you know that the taxpayer is there as a punching bag uh to deal uh to make life better uh, for whoever can uh, get their um you know uh, hand in the tilt this is the fundamental problem. It's getting worse. The fiscal problem is just festering. Uh, they're pretending that it's getting better. That's temporary and due to some accounting gimmicks and we can go into that. The real fiscal crisis is that we're facing trillion dollar deficits year after year as far as the eye can see. Our national debt will soon be uh, 30 trillion at the end of the next decade, not 17 trillion like it is now. It will be 130 or 150 percent of GDP. There's no way to sustain it. We're heading for a major uh, financial catastrophe. It's only a matter of time, and I think we're on borrowed time, and there's not a lot left.
5: Wow, that's uh, that. That I'm afraid I, I agree with you, and I'm I'm afraid that that's true. Uh, I, I just don't know what we're supposed to, what we as human, as as regular people, can do about it, David. And I know that you have a list of things. Uh, in uh, chapter 34, I believe, is at the end right. of your book. But none, of, I think that just to get one of those 13 things approved and passed Congress would be almost impossible, let alone 13 of them. But uh, getting back to the origins of this problem, it seems to me that what we have then is that the parasites are eating away at the At at the body, at the, the, I I think I heard you make a statement here in New York at at a uh, Mises uh, event that uh, was the day after Bernanke actually announced uh, infinite quantitative easing. That that uh, Mr. Bernanke is destroying capitalism from the inside out, obviously through the through the financial markets, destroying the interest rate mechanism, the the pricing mechanism of of the capital markets. But, you know, this is, this is so all-pervasive in the mentality of the country, the mentality of people to want to get something for nothing or the entitlement mentality. It, 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 there isn't any answer really, is there?
6: No, uh, I'm afraid uh, it's like a, I call it uh, a doomsday machine. Uh, it is now has so much deme- uh, momentum. Uh, there are so many people that have their hand in the till or getting benefits one way or another. Uh, who in a democracy don't deserve them. I mean, uh, frankly, I've been very critical of Social Security. It needs drastic reform. It needs to be means tested. We shouldn't be having wealthy people receiving $30,000 a year from Social Security just because they paid in some taxes historically. This isn't an insurance program. You know, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's pay-as-you-go, mm-hmm. and we're running out of workers, and we're getting more and more people because of the baby boom, retiring, and because of our failing economy uh, going on to disability. I mean, people don't realize that But if you go back, uh, say, two decades ago, there may have been three or four million people on disability. Now there are 12 million, and once they get on, they become eligible for Medicare, and the whole, uh, you know, complex of entitlements uh, triggers and, uh, you know, the expense uh, balloons. So uh, we... How you break that cycle uh when there are so many people and so many interest groups and there's so much money in uh, the system is very hard to see. We just had another demonstration of that last week, which I mentioned, but I want to hit a little harder. If anybody can slow this down, it has to be the conservative party, uh, the Republican party. You certainly don't expect the Democrats uh, to tame the welfare state, let's say. Mm -hmm. And yet last week, the Republicans brought this farm bill to the floor. We're in a period of the greatest farm prosperity, the highest commodity prices for soybeans and corn and everything else that we've had in history. And yet the Republicans could not bring themselves to shut down those programs, subsidize crop insurance, price supports, and so forth, but instead passed, you know, one of the most generous farm bills ever with only 12 Republican, uh, dissenting votes, I think it was. Uh, so he, and the Democrats voted against it for whatever reason, but here was clear evidence, overwhelming Republican bo- votes, for a two hundred billion farm boondoggle clean vote, no compli- you know complications like it 's tied to food stamps and poor people and all of that and when it came to step up and put their you know vote where their rhetoric is, they abysmally failed and the, so therefore, the lesson I draw from that is how in the world is anybody going to stop this doomsday machine if the Republican house, even with the ranks of uh, you know, uh, uh, new bar, new members that they had um, can't uh, stop a farm program, which is totally obsolete, a relic of the New Deal, and should have been killed long ago. Yeah. But it just, uh, you know, gives you some indication of how intractable uh, this problem is. Yeah, David, well, we, given the limited amount of time, I want to you know, I,
5: I believe that it's it's impossible to to fix it right now. That are we going to have to see things break down before we can see things get better? That's one question. And then, uh, it's my hope that people like you, Ron Paul, and others who are out there, I think, seeing the world as it really exists, seeing capitalism as it should exist, not the perverted capitalism that we have. Uh, it, it, I guess what we have to hope for is that somebody will go back and. And see and revisit the real cause of the problems that that we have now, and what was really, uh, you know, some of the trigger points along the way. And in my way of thinking, in my lifetime, the most important thing that took place was August fifteenth, nineteen seventy one, when Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard. Would you see that as a key?
6: Absolutely, I agree with that. I think that was the final inflection point. Uh, ironically, a conservative economist, uh, Milton Friedman, recommended that, uh, Nixon do that, but he was a naive man politically and he did not realize that once the, cent- the central bank is unshackled, uh, it will sooner or later engage in massive mission creep It will sooner or later become populated with people who have a desire to run things, to control things, and ultimately uh, to get into the absurdity that we have today, $85 billion a month of bond buying, pegging every interest rate that there is from long to short, uh, propping up the stock market, telling people to buy junk bonds, And if they don't, they'll get uh, no return on a CD if they want to be, you know, sort of give it a deposit if they want to be uh, prudent. All of these things emerged over a period of time incrementally out of the drastic mistake of 1971, uh, August, when at Camp David, Nixon surrounded by all these free market economists made the greatest financial mistake in history. Now we have a rogue central bank that, uh, is basically destroyed the capital market. There's no price discovery left. There's no honest pricing. Interest rates mean nothing other than, uh, speculation against what the Fed may do next. And obviously you can't have a vibrant capitalism if you have totally impaired and disabled financial markets which are at the heart of it. If, if, you know, capital cannot be efficiently allocated. If risk cannot be uh effectively disciplined risk taking then uh and if you have constant uh inducements for huge malinvestments uh in housing and a lot of other speculative activities uh you're uh you know heading for huge problems. I think we have to have a total dislocation and a major blowout in the financial markets, which I believe is coming. We're mm-hmm. in the third bubble of this century, and this bubble is even bigger than the dot-com, even bigger than the housing and credit uh, bubble of 05 to 08, and maybe if we get a uh, severe, uh, uh, violent crisis in the financial markets, the policies of the last decades will finally be discredited enough The people who want to move in a totally different direction will have a chance to have their voice heard. Look at Ron Paul. He was right on many things, and yet he couldn't even be invited to the Republican Convention to state his beliefs after uh, a very uh, powerful run in the primaries. So that all has to change, but it won't change um, on its own. There's going to have to be a thundering crisis um, yeah. and dislocation before we can uh, embark on a new direction. Yeah, David, we have three minutes
5: left, my engineer tells me. I, I just want to mention a couple of the uh, the 13 issues of restore sound money, which would certainly be what Ron Paul was about. I think Ron Paul would agree with you on, on virtually all of the points here. There's, there's one, uh, one issue that uh, that was a little problematic to some of the free market types. In fact, I was just talking to Mark Skousen. You might know Professor Mark right. Skousen. Uh, And he suggested I ask you how imposing a 30% wealth tax is compatible with a vision of free market economics.
6: Okay, uh, you know, you have to put that in context because I said it only if it were linked, A, to a balanced budget amendment that had some enforcement mechanisms Mm -hmm. that would be effective, and B, to a repeal of the 16th amendment and get us out of income taxation, (laughs) which is the ultimate you know, uh, ultimately the destructive instrument in the long run in a democracy that's going bankrupt. Now, obviously, I think it's unlikely we're going to get the constitutional amendment. I know it's going to be impossible uh, to get us out of income taxation, and I would never agree to a wealth tax just so that it could be spent and fatten the state as it exists today. On the other hand, I believe sooner or later we're going to have such a huge crisis with the national debt. 20 trillion, 25 trillion, 30 trillion over time, that we're going to have to find some extraordinary mechanism to not only stop its growth but begin to pay it down if we're ever going to restore any kind of uh, you know, economic prosperity and any fairness for future generations. And it may take something uh, like a wealth tax as part of a complex or as part of a uh, integrated set of measures, uh, to uh, turn things around,
5: David. Uh, with one minute left, what should average people be doing now?
6: What should, how should DL. they be
5: preparing for this?
6: Well, I, I think unfortunately, uh, average people need to get out of harm's way. These markets are not safe, as I say, for men, women, and children, or even trading robots. They're in. They are on the edge of massive uh, breakdown and instability. The Fed has led everybody to the precipice, to the edge and it's only a matter of time, some unexpected event, that will create the next meltdown, uh, but much worse than we had in September 2008. So bonds aren't safe, stocks aren't safe, uh, the Russell 2000, of course, isn't safe, um, and unfortunately, the only safe place is to Keep your money uh, in cash, in short-term uh, investments. You will make no return because our overlords at the Fed have told us you don't deserve to make anything on a bank account, but at least you can preserve your capital. I do not think we're going to have a runaway inflation. I think we're going to have a collapse of the bond market and then all of the financial markets, and cash or gold will be the only two uh, places where you can preserve your value.
5: Well, thank you very much, David. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, Lots more to talk to you about. I hope perhaps we could have you back sometime if you'd be willing.
6: Certainly we could do that. I'd like to do that.
5: Oh, that would be great. That would be wonderful. Okay, well, thank you very much. I do have to go to our next break and uh, our next guest, so I'll look forward to talking to you in the near future sometime.
6: Okay, very good. Enjoy being with
5: you. Thank you. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back. Uh, We're going to have Dr. Robert McHugh with us, and he's going to talk a little bit more about uh, what he, well, how he thinks the markets are going to play out here. He sees some more upside for the Dow, but then it could be Katie bar the door on the downside after that. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. McHugh.
3: In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group metals, nickel, and copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com.